This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 22nd, 2015, and this is Michael Howley welcoming you to episode 231 of Defender Radio. We wanted to have a week that focused on good news, and that's exactly what we've got here. We connected with superstar lawyer Camille Labchuk to talk about Quebec's new animal welfare legislation and what it means for the future of wildlife, animals in captivity, and companion animals in La Belle Province. We also got in touch with Dr. Carrie Packwood Freeman, a cultural studies professor who specializes in media communications and teaches journalists and the public what non-human animal news done right looks like. Let's get started. It was a bit of a shock earlier this month when Quebec announced they would be revamping existing and introducing new legislation to protect animals. Known internationally as a terrible place to be a dog, cow or farmed mink, the province is hoping to improve their reputation. To help us understand the changes, improvements, and what the future will look like for the animals, we connected with every animal and animal lover's favorite attorney, Camille Labchuk. Earlier this month, news comes out that animals in Quebec will be considered quote-unquote sentient beings instead of property. And immediately social media and the news all kind of blew up, and then it got really quiet again. Um, so why don't we start with what you saw in terms of what this legislation that was proposed would actually mean for animals in Quebec? Right. Well, the new proposed legislation in Quebec uh, recognizes, it says, animals are not things, they are sentient beings. And that has important symbolic significance. It is the first time in, in the, the, the history of, of Canada, both provincially and federally, that there has been a recognition, not passed yet, but expected to be passed, that, that animals are sentient beings. Um, in terms of what it means legally, it doesn't mean that animals are not property, and it doesn't necessarily have a great deal of legal significance beyond symbolism. But that symbolism still is. Uh, important. It, it is a, a first step to recognizing uh, the inherent value of animals and the fact that they suffer and feel pain like we do. And I believe it will help change people's mentalities with respect to animals. Now, in terms of existing practices and all this, um, it, it, particularly with, with fur farms, but uh, well, we can likely speak more to uh, the domestic uh, animals, uh, both pets and farmed. Um, is like, is life going to be different for these animals if this legislation moves forward, or is this really just symbolic at this point? Well, it depends on a few things. Uh, first of all, the, the legislation overall is a step in the right direction. The background, of course, is that Quebec has been called the best province in the country in which to be an animal abuser for years now by legal experts. It's been known as the puppy mill capital of Canada and uh, very backwards when it comes to animals. So the fact that there are now um, positive changes being made is, is definitely uh, a good thing. Of course, there's always more that could be done, but there there is a lot of good in, in the legislation. So, for example, there's a focus now on uh, the psychological well-being of, of certain animals, including dogs and horse, horses and cats. Uh, the legislation specifically says they should get stimulation, uh, socialization, appropriate enrichment, 
And that's an important step forward because the idea of psychological suffering with respect to animals is, is something that's um, being discussed now more than it ever was before. Uh, so this is important, and there's a, a bit of recognition of psychological welfare elsewhere in the statutes as well, respecting um, certain other animals, although it's not quite as, as clear for them. But uh, So it, it's important that uh, these changes are being made. So it does sound almost like uh, the first step away from, uh, and, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong, uh, Descartes' um, biological machine theory almost of no longer is it simply what's necessary to keep them alive, but what's necessary to keep them maybe not happy, but uh, sort of above uh, treading water in terms of survival. Yeah, that's right. And Canadians and people around the world are really, uh, really on board with the idea that animals do have complex inner emotional lives. They form relationships with other animals and uh, even interspecies relationships. They can suffer, they can feel pain like we do, and they also experience happiness and joy. And uh, we we understand as people that, uh, that this is the case, and legislation still has a long way to do to catch up with it. But I think uh, the moves that Quebec is making are an important first step in that direction. And I, I believe that we're going to see uh, this become a more accepted aspect of animal protection law in the future, both in terms of legislation, but also I, I believe the courts are going to begin recognizing this with greater frequency. Uh, do you think it's surprising that uh, Quebec, uh, again, which has long been known as a, a pretty horrific province for animals is the first one to use that terminology of sentience in its legislation, you know, over Ontario or Manitoba, British Columbia, etc., other other provinces that are considered to have better animal protection laws. I think it's fantastic, and there, there's a few things that come into play. Quebec has long been quite embarrassed, I believe, by its status as the, the worst province in Canada for animals. And many very dedicated activists in Quebec, including from the Montreal SPCA and Humane Society International, have been working quite closely with the government to, to try to improve the situation there for animals. So I think that's played a big role. Also, interestingly, is that uh, France's, or, sorry, Quebec's legal system, of course, is based on the, the, common, the, the civil law system from uh, France. And quite recently, within the, the last six months, France actually amended its civil code to recognize that animals are sentient beings as well. Um, so it's interesting that we now see uh, Quebec following steps. Definitely. And uh, I, I, one last thing I wanted to ask about this, and you and I have talked about this before, I believe. Uh, our, our dear friend, Member of Parliament in Manitoba, Robert Sopak, uh, has said that uh, any real changes to animal welfare laws, anything that you know, elevates animals above property or gives them legal recognition as sentience will mean the end of Canada as we know it. Um, and I think he actually froths at the mouth when he says that. Um, <laughs> so what, I, is this a step towards that of pure animal liberation that he or others in the extreme right may fear? Or is this simply a step in a better direction? Well, it's a step in a better direction. And let's be clear about the issue of property. Uh, you know, changing the property status of animals isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow. They're going to be property for the foreseeable future. And that doesn't preclude meaningful protection for them. 
so when Mr. Sopak gets uh, his Nickers in a twist about the, the issue of animals being called property or being called something else, frankly, it's a distraction. Uh, what we should be focusing on as advocates is improving life for animals now by, by mandating strong uh, standards of care for animals that are kept in captivity on farms, and zoos, and entertainment, and for farms in all kinds of circumstances. Uh, and we should be pushing to uh, give animals the right to go to court through legal standing to have somebody or an organization enforce their legal rights if they are being violated. Uh, that would be, in my view, more meaningful than simply changing the property status of animals. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it's a true cultural shift as opposed to a simple legal terminology change. Um, and in terms of the fur farms, one of the problems that had come up in Quebec in the past was the the disadvantages laid before animal advocates and professional uh, or, or government uh, animal protection groups such as SPCAs or humane societies to really get in, inspect, and put, I, I'm trying to think of the right term, but pretty much lay down the smack as necessary. Uh, will this legislation, or do we know at this point, will this legislation have any role in the ability to better manage uh, poorly run, poorly managed, or abusive situations on fur firms? Well, that's, that's important. Uh, enforcement is, frankly, one of the most important aspects of animal protection laws. It, it's fine to have good laws on the books, but if they're not enforced vigorously, then the laws might as well not exist in, in the first place because it won't change anything for animals. Um, so, so my reading of the legislation is that it doesn't expand some enforcement authority. And it's really going to be up to those authorities to make sure that these laws are vigorously uh, enforced. And one thing that um, I've always thought was quite important was was, was doing randomized uh, spot inspections instead of waiting for a complaint to come up. So I, I think that's something that uh, really needs to happen to ensure that animal protection at schools are met. To get in touch with Camille, follow the email links in this week's Defender Radio blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. I've spent many hours ranting about the horrible jobs some journalists have done in writing articles regarding wildlife. You can ask my colleagues in Vancouver. The long-distance bills are exorbitant. 
But knowing how to write for non-human animals is a skill that can be easily taught, thanks to the work of Dr. Carrie Packwood Freeman. A professor at Georgia State University, Dr. Freeman co-wrote a groundbreaking guide to adapt current journalistic standards to covering non-human animals in the news. More recently, she took it a step further and created the AnimalsInMedia.org website, open to journalists and the public alike. Dr. Freeman joined Defender Radio recently to walk us through the importance of good reporting and how media consumers can make a difference. So let's talk about Animals in Media, uh, a style guide for giving voice to the voiceless. This is all based, I believe, on a paper that you co-wrote a few years back. Uh, could you talk a bit about what that paper was and why the decision was made to really start investigating in the subject of animals and the media? Yeah, several years ago, I co-authored a paper on giving voice to the voiceless that was published in Journalism Studies, a um, academic journal. It was co-authored with two biologists, Sarah Bexel and Mark Beckoff, and we wanted to advocate and explain how journalists could use fellow animals, non-human animals, as sources or encourage them to use and see non-human animals as sources of news. And, you know, rather than having that be ridiculous or funny, let's see how we could really do that. How could we communicate on their behalf, either by turning the cameras on them and allowing them to communicate about their situations, or just by using more inclusive terminology or involving biologists or ethologists or advocates to help explain the interests of the non-human animals in any situation that's newsworthy that affects them. Because so often, um, you know, we cover all kinds of, of news stories. A lot of times they're not newsworthy, but when they are even, um, or they're environmental or they're related to food or things like that that involve non-human animals, we leave the non-human animals out of the story and we talk around them and we only talk about us. So I was encouraging, we were encouraging journalists to open that up and be more inclusive and to fulfill their mandate to be a voice for the voiceless and not just represent marginalized human groups, but see non-human animals as a marginalized group who had not been receiving their fair share of coverage in the news media. And then we decided based on that article and some other um, work that I've done studying media and also my co-author, Dr. Deborah Merskin, also a media scholar, we just took our, our um, scholarship that we'd done and turned it into a style guide for media practitioners so we could translate some of the stuff we're doing that's getting published in academia and put it in more into the um, public sphere for actual use by practitioners. Yeah, and uh, I actually came across that original study. Uh, I, I was talking to to Mark, Mark Beckoff, about coyotes several years ago, and he sent it to me. And I was working as a print journalist at the time, and it really did change the way uh, I did my job, but also the way I looked at the way other people were doing the job. And it made me very judgy. Um, so there's a lot of people who don't like me because of that. So it's your fault, really. But well, oh, because yeah, and I am I'm very prescriptive. Like I don't like to be an academic that just describes and criticizes things. I like to prescribe, like and say, okay, here's a better way of doing things. And then even if people don't like those prescriptions, they can wrestle with it. Like I mean, with the animals and media guidelines, 
journalists could say, well, I don't, I think some of this is going too far or whatever, but that's fine. I'd still like them to at least take it seriously and modify it in some way that fits their needs, uh, but still it's a way to just raise awareness. And I do hope that not only other journalists, but just anyone who's reading the news, watching the news, who sees a story and feels like the non-human animal perspective wasn't fairly given or was left out or animal advocates were treated unfairly, I'm hoping that they can go to animalsandmedia.org and look up some of the specific guidelines. And when they write a letter to the editor, that gives them a little bit more uh, credibility to their argument to say, here's some policies on this website by some media scholars, and here's some things you didn't do in the story, or here's some things you did really well you know, abiding by these guidelines, because I hope that people also praise the news media when they are doing a great job as well. Yeah, and it's uh, unfortunately not too often we see that, but we have seen in Canada some excellent organizations, and I'll be uh, actually looking into that more later this year. Um, but I, I think what's interesting to me now is, is as you said it's about uh, prescribing benefits rather than saying this is not the way to do it um and i like the fact that not only do you have amendments for a code of ethics as well as the ap style book uh and, and for those who are not in the field style book in in the united states it's the associated press in canada it's the canadian press or cp um and journalists hold on to those like bibles because every question you could possibly have about how should I say something or what is the correct context or correct usage is answered in these books. And that's very much how you have really, t in my opinion, formed your website, animalsinmedia.org. Uh, was that really the intent to sort of create that tool for journalists and people in general? Absolutely. We wanted to put it out so it's you know free for everybody on the website as it's another version of a style guide um, of like an Associated Press or, or the Canadian Press style book, but it's more focused just on pro-animal guidelines and the context in which we should discuss uh, animals and you know the environment in which we live. So it also includes some ecological principles as well as animal rights principles. In there, but we absolutely wanted it to be useful for journalists. And also, there's guidelines for entertainment media producers and public relations practitioners and advertisers as well. Yeah, and um, the part that's, and I actually reference this from time to time because I know I forget, and uh, my, my boss Leslie has pointed it out to me once or twice where I've, I've screwed up, is the, uh, the terminology glossary, which is very nicely put together. Um, so it's, it's, it's all about the, uh, the pronouns in the beginning. Um, so it's he, she, they, whom, whom, someone or somebody, as opposed to it, that, which, or something. Um, and then it's, it's the ones that are, I think, the most common. So rather than saying livestock, say cows, sheep, pigs, donkeys, rather than pork, say pigs, rather than game, say deer, rabbits, foxes. And the one that gets me, and I have to think about when I write regarding fur farms, is the passive terms that conceal human control and active terms that reveal human control. So farm animals, which is naturally what I want to write, as opposed to farmed animals. Why is it important to really have those distinctions between what you label as passive terms and active terms? Well, rather than just 
labeling someone as something by the industry which uses them by you know saying using farm is more of an adjective let's use it as a verb and that brings in the human that brings in the industry and it shows that this is something that's being done to the animal it doesn't necessarily define who the animal is so you know rather than just saying dairy cow we can say a cow who is used by the dairy industry who is milked by the dairy industry or a circus elephant who is kept Rather than saying circus elephant, you would say an elephant who is kept in the circus or used by the circus. So, and I actually feel that that, from a journalistic standpoint, is just actually being more accurate. And it's because a lot of times these are industry terms, like to just to use the term cattle or lab rat or something like that or livestock. Those are industry terms. And in, for journalists, they often like to use more neutral terms, like ones that aren't necessarily exactly what the activists want to use, nor what the industry wants to use, and just trying to be as accurate as possible. So I feel like, you know, rather than just saying game or livestock, saying cows is more specific, or, you know, saying animals who are farmed. Uh, because there are turkeys in this world, you know, who live free and wild and who aren't farmed. So every turkey, you could clarify, you know, we're talking about turkeys who are farmed rather than the wild turkeys. So it's another way of being more specific and also just reminding us that we're doing something to these animals and it's not necessarily their choice to be farmed or to be used for their milk or to be kept in a circus or in a research lab. Uh, now, the, the other thing I wanted to touch on with you is uh, the general public, and you do have a nice page called Tips for the General Public, which I'm currently looking at on your websites, but um, when you're watching the news, and this is something that I've written about, and you and I have talked about, uh, and I'm pretty sure I, I ranted to you in an email at two in the morning one time after watching the news repeats, but um, when we're watching the news... And the one that gets me frequently is attacks. So we deal a lot with the conflict situations at the fur bears. So we'll see a bear attacks a camper. And that's a sample I've always used in uh, uh, the presentations I've done on media sensationalism. And the headlines, you know, the actual facts are a hiker is walking, comes across a bear who has her cubs. The bear assaults the man to a degree they both escape. So the headlines are bear attacks man, bear torments man, chases him away, blah, 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 blah. Um, how can we teach people who don't spend their entire day looking at the news to take those individual facts out of, say, a 600-word article and understand what we know to have happened compared to what we are being told might have happened? So in this case, you have to be an educated consumer and understand their behavior in case the news journalist did not properly put it in context. Uh, but I think it's common knowledge that you should not come between uh, a bear and her cub, that that's a dangerous situation and you usually want to make noise when you're walking in the woods and different things because you don't want to just startle a bear, but it could be that rather than the word attack, like you're pointing out, it could be that she defended herself. And so because in, in human society, we do allow for some violence if it's in self-defense. But we, you know, but to use the word attack sounds just predatory, and it also sounds like it's mean-spirited or perhaps even irrational. 
Um, and so we want to give it proper context. It's interesting to me, though, because a lot of times when you, if anyone has been bitten by a shark or by a bear or different things, and this doesn't happen very often, but for the times it does, when you ask that person, oh, you know, should the shark be killed or the bear be killed, they actually are the ones who are the most forgiving to that individual. Like they understood the situation that it was more of an accident or the shark misunderstood who they were, thought they were someone he could eat, and then he discovered he didn't want to, you know. So I've always been so impressed, actually, by the people who have been harmed in, in certain limited, you know, incidents that have happened, that they seem to be fairly generous and understanding of the situation, that when you put yourself in a wilderness situation, you know, it's not a completely risk-free environment. But that other animals are also, they're not irrational predatory beings just because someone's carnivorous or even omnivorous doesn't mean they're running around wanting to kill everyone. They're making conscious choices all the time, and most of the time they're making the conscious choice to stay away from us. <laughs> um, that happens most of the time, but sometimes we, we have an altercation, um, and, and that's when you want to provide that context. So maybe it's good for the journalist to get a biologist or a park ranger or something involved in the discussion so he or she can you know, talk about perhaps what the human could have done differently to avoid this situation. And uh, we, we mentioned making sure to reward journalists or media outlets that do a good job. And I, I agree, that is very important to send a note and say, look, I'm very impressed by what you've done. I do that uh, from time to time, just a personal note uh, to, the, to, the, to the reporter rather than to the newspaper or the editor. Um, but when there is a problem, and, and again, we'll use a bear attack as an example, because this time of year, those are uh, more frequent headlines than we'd see else uh, other times of the year. Uh, and you see a journalist really just drop the ball. So for me, it's typically sitting with my laptop and screaming and ranting and getting confused looks by people around me at Starbucks uh, because I know that the reporter should know better uh, than what they've done. I've been through the same training program. Uh, I've got the same experience and I'm saying that's wrong. Um, it's sort of like seeing a misused comma or, you know, an Oxford comma, which that's a, an entire show on itself. But anyway, um, so I guess what I, I, I want to ask you is when we are we are consumers of media, we see these problems and we want to say, I'm not sure what you did was correct and here's how you might want to do it another time. How do we do that and stay positive without our writing coming across as though we're frothing at the mouth and holding down the shift key while we write it. Right. I try to also instill this in my undergraduate students. I have some letters to the editor assignments for extra credit, and I always tell them, be very professional, talk about ethics and what, you know, like compare what they've done to the code of ethics, um, and don't use any, don't do any name calling, but just kind of um, ask them to live up to the ideals that the profession has set for themselves. And you can also find a way to compliment them, like, I'm so glad you're talking about wilderness issues. But one of the things I see a lot in journalism, which was also in your article, was this. And, we, you know, we'd like to move away from that kind of language, or I feel that it's, you know, that there's a general misconception in the public that these animals are dangerous when really they're not. And, you know, you have the opportunity to help um, change those misperceptions and false ideas about wildlife, you know, so it just can be written in a positive way. And you could say, well, you know, here's a, a guideline for you at animalsandmedia.org. 
And if you put some of these things into practice, I think it will really help the, the news reporting. So, yeah, I mean, that would be, I mean, it is hard for anybody in journalism who works in public communication. They never can please everybody, you know, and everything they're putting out is, such, is up for such public critique that it must be very fatiguing to them to constantly be criticized. So you want to make it very constructive and also blend it into some compliments as well. Point out what you do like and what would be better. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank my guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.